so much that God wants to do that he isn't able to accomplish because of our lack of faith. It makes it sound like that faith is the problem. So you know, what it is is that when you trust God, you will walk in obedience. And when you walk in obedience, God can accomplish all that he wants to. But when you don't trust God, you start to walk in disobedience. And then God won't do all that he wants to do in that situation because you can't handle what he wants to do. Once again, it all boils down to the question of faith over fear. Do you believe God enough to do what he asks of you? Or do you live in fear and hold back your obedience from God? In today's message, Pastor Daniel is going to take a look at a time where fear wins out. The people don't do what God has asked of them. The consequences are real. Now, it's easy to look at the Israelites and judge, but where is your faith or fear leading you today? Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Judges, chapter 2, as he begins a new message called The Wheels Fall Off. All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter 2, as we continue our leisurely journey here through the book of Judges. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Judges is towards the beginning of your Bible. You have the first five books of Moses that we know of as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then, of course, you have the book of Joshua. Then you have the book of Judges. So Judges chapter 2. And in a lot of ways, we have to always remember that the things written in the scriptures are there for our admonition. So really what we have in this section here is it's telling the story of the children of Israel in that season after the death of Joshua, kind of before that season when God has raised up Saul as a king and ultimately King David. And so it tells the story of what's going on in the lives of the children of Israel and that although culture changes, situations change, people are primarily the same. And so on each page of the book of Judges, we see stories about that generation, but we can draw lessons and inferences about our own life and what's going on where we live. And my hope is, as we see what we're going to see today, I mean, I've called this message, When the Wheels Fall Off. And so uh, unfortunately for too many of us, we've had those experiences where things are just not going the way that you want them to, that they're supposed to. Things are falling apart. And when that happens, you know, it's a good time to both look up and then look in, right? So we look up at the Lord and then we say, Lord, as we're looking at you, will you look in and see how I'm doing and what I'm involved in? What's fascinating if you, and this is as old as the Garden of Eden, is that for most people when the wheels start falling off, they try and figure out who to blame, right? So that you want like, this is who's responsible for my wheels falling off, which uh, it's as old as the Garden of Eden because oftentimes people don't want to actually own like, this is my part in all this. I just had a situation to go on just, just today where it was, there was some blame that was placed which had nothing to do with anything. And I was just like, oh, look at that. But I could get cold about it until I remember that that's just the way we are as humans, right? Where you have to say, I'm supposed to look up and then I'm supposed to look in. And anytime I want to place blame to somebody else, oftentimes I'm allowing my own insecurities or fears to obscure my place in it. 
And so as we study this passage, my hope is that rather than looking out at other people, we'll just say, Lord, we're going to look at you and we're going to let you, by your spirit, look in our hearts. Because this was written to admonish us, to encourage us, to challenge us. This was written so that we would see ourselves through the mirror and the lens of the Holy Spirit. So let's just jump right on in. This is what it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now, what's uh, fascinating here, and if you'll notice, and by the time we get to verses 7 and 10, we get a rehearsal once again of the death of Joshua. So this little snapshot happens while Joshua is still alive. Now, what you end up seeing here is that the angel of the Lord arrives to the people. They came up from Gilgal. They went to this place called Bochim, which literally means in the Hebrew language, weeping. Now, the question always becomes, who is the angel of the Lord? People argue about who it is. Some people would say that it is a pre-incarnation of Jesus, which means it is Jesus showing up before he is incarnate as a descendant of the tribe of Judah. He shows up. And there's a lot of great reasons for it. Now, I always make the case that when the Bible doesn't give us all those details, I'm not going to press hard on that. So the idea of the angel is the idea of a messenger of the Lord. And so whether or not it was actually Jesus in this instance or not is up for interpretation. And I really don't think it matters if it was Jesus or not. Either way, it was a messenger speaking to the people on behalf of God. And I just think that's good Bible interpretation. I've always said that where the Bible remains silent, we should be also. Does that make sense? So I'm willing to say I don't know exactly who this angel is. It just says the angel of the Lord. And although I have lots of people who I know and respect, scholars who I love who say this is absolutely Jesus, if my Bible doesn't say it's absolutely Jesus, I'm like, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Does that make sense? But I don't think it's a matter of actually who the angel is. I think what's really important is the message that is given. Does that make sense? So it's about what is God trying to say to his people? Now, notice we have this rehearsal once again, as we've seen all through these last number of books in the Old Testament. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land, which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, I think what's beautiful here is God begins with who he is and what he's done. Right? He's like, look, I brought you up from Egypt. I delivered you from Egypt. And I promise that I have made a covenant with you that I intend to keep. 
Now, I think that's really beautiful because no matter where you are today, God has chosen to deliver you from Egypt in your own way. Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. It's a picture of being in bondage or being enslaved. People were enslaved. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, but you and I were actually under a greater slavery, a slavery to the sin nature, right? The Bible teaches that when we were born, we had a nature that by default lived in rebellion against God. Right? And that sin nature drove us to live lives of rebellion against God. Now, whether that rebellion is absolutely crazy and you end up with mug shots and on America's Most Wanted or whatever, or whether it was just you just didn't always do the best that you knew you ought to do, either way, it reveals a nature that is in rebellion against God. And God is chosen by Jesus to deliver us from that bondage. And he brings us up from that place of slavery and the directionality of it. It's always interesting that people would always go up to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And the rabbis would tell you it's always because God wants to bring you closer to where he is, to who he is. And so God has delivered all of us, in a sense, from Egypt, from slavery. And I also love the fact that God says, and I will never break my covenant with you. Why? Because God is faithful. So God is not only a covenant maker, God by nature is a covenant keeper, right? But notice what else happened. Because God has made a covenant with the children of Israel, it says in verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice, why have you done this? Now think about that for a second. He said, I've made this covenant with you. Right? And he's like, and I am asking you to be faithful to this one covenant. I don't want you to make covenants with the people of the land. And I want you to go in and I want you to tear down their altar. See, really what God is interested in is he's interested in spiritual faithfulness or spiritual purity. And he was very concerned with the children of Israel going into this land and keeping the altars there, knowing that there would be a temptation to want to conform to the culture in which they're living and thus begin to worship the gods of that land. Now, I'm here to tell you what's beautiful is that God, in this way, is a faithful spouse. He wants our hearts for himself. He doesn't want to share those. Now, he wants our hearts for himself not because he's insecure. He knows that when we are as devoted to him as he is to us, that that is the safest, most beautiful, most virtuous, and an amazing place to be. And he knows that if we allow ourselves to be seduced to worship other things, that that divided heart would not only lead to a brokenness in humanity, but would also ultimately destroy what God has created as good. But this is the problem with the human condition is that we struggle to be people who are faithful, faithful to God. And I don't think we have to belabor the point because I think you're all human as I am and you know what that's like, right? There are times when you are passionate and devoted to God and there's other times when you're really passionate and devoted to other things. And what's interesting is that the really the root cause of All sin actions is idolatry. It's choosing to worship another God. Martin Luther said it, and I think it's a very astute observation in looking at the Ten Commandments. He said, there's a reason that you shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. Because really, the reason you would murder or steal or break the Sabbath or the reason you would take God's name in vain or covet is because you violated the first commandment. 
Holding something else as God or source apart from the true and living God will lead to all sorts of ethical and spiritual dilemmas. And I think what we have to come to terms with individually is what are the idols that my heart wants to erect? What do I go to for safety, for comfort? What do I look to other than God to be my abiding place, my resting place? And what I've learned in my own life as I've asked the Spirit of God to dissect and discern what's in my heart is that my heart is a veritable idol factory, right? It's like if it's not one thing, it's another thing. There's a million things jockeying for the throne of my heart. And whether when I was single, it was the idea of being married or getting married, it's the idea of having kids or it's this, say this. Now, none of those things are bad, but none of those things are worthy to be worshipped. Only God is worthy to be worshipped. So, you know, what's interesting is within uh, the work of ministry, I know lots of people who love Jesus, but their idol is a position, a titling, right? As if that gives us some sort of security or validity. Now, I'm not saying that a title is bad. I'm just saying that it's not worthy to be worshipped. You're of much more value than that. Now, what I would always say, someone say, well, how will I know what the idol is in my heart? I'll say this. Anything that would be taken away from you that would completely devastate you, That's an idol in your heart. See, I realize that when God takes people who are close to us away from us because we love them and we care about them, that hurts. But at the same time, if we find our life in another person other than Jesus, we're actually setting them up for failure in our own heart. They weren't designed to be something that we build our identity off of. Only God can be our identity. And what I have found is like with my bride, if if I want to build my identity in her, if she doesn't treat me the way I think I should be treated or she doesn't respond the way I should respond, then what ends up happening for me is that I actually begin to see myself not the way God sees me. And what happens is, is that those insecurities that drive an identity that's built on something other than Jesus, I actually diminish my wife's capacity to be my companion through life. Because now she has to give me something more than God created her to give me. She has to be my identity prop as opposed to my companion in this world. And I think anybody who's been married or looked forward to it, you know what that's like because you've experienced those things. When you have children, oftentimes your children, or maybe if God, for whatever reason, you don't, you're not allowed to have children, right? As much as you long for that, you don't want to build your identity on those things. Because when you build your identity on your children, if your children get wayward, then all of a sudden now you realize that you've actually created an idol out of your kids because now you're so dev- you love them, but there's a difference between loving somebody and building your identity on them. The thing can happen for your career. I mean, I, we can do this all day, right? And so the key is, and I've heard it said this way and I love it, is that when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Right? So like your spouse, your vocation, your children, that's a good thing. But don't make it an ultimate thing. Because once it becomes an ultimate thing, then it becomes something that destroys you slowly. So God is the only ultimate thing. That's why Jesus could say something so radical. He said, look, unless you hate your father and mother, your spouse, your children, unless you hate them, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, he's not saying he wants you to hate your parents. He's not saying he wants you to hate your wife or your kids or, or your resources. He's saying, as long as they don't become ultimate things. Because right as they become an ultimate thing, you can't follow me because you can't serve two masters. Does that make sense? Now, I realize I opened up a can of worms there, and, and there's a million nuances within it. But the reality is, is for the children of Israel, they were lusting after other things. 
They were making covenants with the people of that land. And that rhetorical question, why have you done this? And look what it says in verse three. It says, therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So the idea is, is because the children of Israel had their hearts divided, God was not going to be able to accomplish all that he wanted to. He said, because your heart is divided, I'm not going to drive out all these people from your lands and the gods in your lands, they're going to be a stumbling block for you. So because of the lack of faithfulness for the children of Israel, God was not going to fulfill all that he wanted to fulfill in their life. Now, here's the thing. Even though we don't live in a dispensation of an, a conditional covenant, realize through Jesus, the covenant is different now. Because God realizes that left up to our own devices, we're going to be unfaithful. And Jesus unconditionally makes a covenant with us. But here's what I want to tell you. Your experience of God's blessing is also tied to the idolatry of your own heart. Not saying that the blessing isn't there, but your ability to experience it. Why? Because there's so much that God wants to do that he isn't able to accomplish because of our lack of faith. It makes it sound like that faith is the problem. So you know, what it is is that When you trust God, you will walk in obedience. And when you walk in obedience, God can accomplish all that he wants to. But when you don't trust God, you start to walk in disobedience. And then God won't do all that he wants to do in that situation because you can't handle what he wants to do. When you're faithful, he who's faithful in little things, God will give greater things to. So there is a synergy between what God is doing and what we get to experience. And I think for all of us, if you look back over your walk, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you'll see that there were times when you were a great partner for what God wanted to do. And there were times when you were a partner that God had to work around. Can I get an amen to that? And so God will ultimately always accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. Because if you're not in a place to be able to be the vehicle, God will use somebody else. But really the question becomes is, are you available for God to do what he wants to do? Are you being faithful with what you're supposed to do? See, he says here, he's like, not only am I not going to drive them out, but the very gods who I don't want you to worship, they're actually going to be a snare to you because your heart's divided. And so when I read things like this, I start to say to myself, God, where is my heart divided? Like, where am I not devoted only to you, God? Where do I have competing affections or agendas? Where are things that I'm like, I really love Jesus, but I really want this other thing more. Right? Like in our pre-service prayer, it was amazing. I didn't share any of the message with anybody there, but one of the prayers that was going on in that pre-service prayer is, Lord, let us not be afraid of you giving us more of you. And there was people started speaking, praying and speaking prophetically about, I believe there's some of us right now who we want more of God, but we're really terrified of what God's going to ask of us. And so it's a great reminder. Sometimes we want security and ease more than we want what God has for us. And that's why oftentimes God will invite us into things and we'll be like, yeah, no thanks, God. Right? Or it's like, well, yeah, Lord, I'm not, I'm really, no, Lord. Right? And so we have to make sure that we are always willing and that we trust the Lord. Now, from there, what it says in verse four is that so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Wow. 
So the people heard it, and their hearts were broken about what they heard. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and that literally means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they offered sacrifices to God. And then it says, and when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Verse 7, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Timnath, Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. Then all that generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So, Right here, you start to see where the slide is coming in. Now, really what we find is that because of Joshua's leadership and the leadership of those elders who are with Joshua, it says that the people served the Lord in those days. They had godly leaders. They had people who they could look to, people who could help be mediators of what, who God is and what he's done. And as long as there were those guardrails of godly leadership... Things went well. But then notice what it says in verse 8. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And so Joshua lived a good long time. Now notice the title that Joshua was given. What was Joshua called? The servant of the Lord. That's what I want you to do. I want you to take that and I want you to circle that in your Bible right there. Because here's the deal. That's the best title ever to be given. Right there. All these other titles, I'm VP of marketing, I'm this chief whatever, whatever, you know. Listen, the best title is that you're known as the servant of the Lord. Because Jesus said the greatest in his kingdom is what? The servant of all, right? Our job is to be servants. And a servant simply does the will of his master. I mean, that title, Moses was called over and over again the servant of the Lord. Now Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. It's a tremendous, tremendous testimony. See, the servant is simply there to serve, right? So Joshua was called the servant of the Lord just as Moses was, and he dies, and he gets to be buried within the realm of his inheritance. But by the time we get to verse 10, notice, then all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, and another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So what's interesting about this is this isn't necessarily just an indictment of the younger generation. It's also an indictment of the generation who did not pass along an experiential knowledge. Now here's the thing. For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you would what we would be called grounded in the faith. You exist today to make huge investments and deposits in the spiritual well-being of the emerging generation. That's why you exist. So sometimes people, get, they get all worked up in church, like, oh, this church is for young people, or this church is for old people. No, the church is for people. And everybody in the church has a role within the church. And those of you who've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, if you're like, well, I don't really like the music, it's not about the music. You have been grounded so that you can make an investment in the next generation. We believe here in Crossroads in being a family of faith fully engaged. And that means everyone has a part to play. Jesus is real. 
In today's message, Pastor Daniel asks you, what do you do when the wheels fall off? What do you do when nothing is going the way you want it to go? Do you begin to look for someone to blame or do you look up to God and ask him to look inside of you? When you look at others to place blame, your view of your own sin becomes obscured. Instead of placing blame, you can look to the Lord and ask him to look inside your heart. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel, and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy, and the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Hey, I wanted to remind you that each day on Facebook, Pastor Daniel shares a simple two-minute message. In this message, Pastor Daniel draws out an important biblical truth that really helps set your day on the right path. So be sure to follow Pastor Daniel Fusco on Facebook and share these two-minute messages with your friends and family. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will ask another important question. Are you a great partner for what God wants to do in the world, or does he have to work around you? You were created for a purpose. When you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, a big part of that purpose is to pour into the next generation of believers. You have a God-given responsibility to invest in the emerging generation. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through this series called Arise. Until then, may God bless.